Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we're going to follow the career of an exceptional Turkish commander who managed to rise above his station and establish an independent state. Beyond being a pivotal historical development in his own right, we'll use Ahmad ibn Tulun as a vehicle to explore the situation in the Caliphate's west. His journey had an impact on Mesopotamia, Syria, the Byzantine frontier, but especially Egypt. While these lands had been more important during Umayyad times, it wasn't until the anarchy that Abbasid dominion was fundamentally compromised, allowing for the rise of a rival power. Episode 76 Homegrown Competition I have to say, out of all the reigns we've covered so far, none has thrown me off as much as Al-Mu'tamid's. I remember thinking that I'll spread it out over a leisurely four episodes. One to introduce the post-anarchy world, one on Iraq and the East, another on the rest of the realm, and a final one to discuss miscellanea and succession. The first went roughly according to plan, but when I started working on the second, I found myself having to reintroduce everything we'd ignored since the anarchy, and as a result, the slave rebellion in Basra took more time to cover. I made the same mistake last time. I tried to cram a bunch of other regions into our discussion of Khurasan, only to end up with a mess in bad need of a rewrite. Again, I'd failed to account for how much time I required to bring us back up to speed. The delay isn't even the main issue anymore. The constant referral back to pre-anarchy days every time we take up a new topic can make it feel like we're spinning in place. I'm afraid I see no way around this for now, but don't despair, we'll soon emerge with a reconstituted caliphate which fit the new world it existed within. While there's little I can do about the disorienting jumping back and forth in time, I can try to keep our discussion tidy. In this spirit, we're going to focus on a single subject today, a Turkish commander by the name of Ahmed ibn Tulun, whose considerable legacy will give us plenty to talk about. Alas, his journey spans the Caliphate's west and is crowded with new names and faces, shifting alliances and other confusing elements. So in an effort to keep things straight, I'm going to try framing our discussion within sections. I'll introduce a broad headline at the start of each to keep our attention focused on the most salient facts. This should help us skip over irrelevant material and still adequately cover this complicated topic. The priority will be clarity, so please expect and excuse redundancy as we go along. All that said, Let's begin with section 1, the epilogue. Our primary concern here is to introduce our subject and describe his initial rise to power. As he is the founder of a dynasty, 
there are plenty of hagiographic accounts of Ahmed ibn Tulun's life, but we won't delve too deep into his puffed-up backstory. His father, Tulun, was Uyghur, or a Uyghur Turk, captured in a raid and gifted to the Caliph al-Ma'mun back when he was still in Maru. Ahmad was born around 835 in al-Mu'tasim's shiny new Samarra, making him one of the first generation of imperial soldiers raised in the military capital. By the time Tulun passed away late in al-Mutawakkil's tenure, the teenaged or twenty-something Ahmad had completed his martial education and was already serving in Tarsus, on the caliphate's border with the Byzantines. We're told that Ibn Tulun enjoyed a glowing reputation among his fellow Turks, who trusted him to such an extent that they would leave both their wealth and women in his care. He was more than just an honest man, though, renowned for his valor in battle just as much as his piety. I'm sure a lot of this fawning praise we find is exaggerated to fit the towering figure he would later become, but it's difficult to say exactly how much. This is where things get a little more complicated. Ibn Tulun was in Tarsus when the anarchy in Samarra first got started, but seems to have returned to Iraq during the reign of the puppet caliph al-Musta'in. Some accounts allege acts of heroism on his part, which earned him the enduring trust and gratitude of the caliph. But again, it's unclear to what extent that is true. What we do know is that after al-Musta'in's defeat in the proxy fitna, Ibn Tulun was appointed as his guard, or warden. And there are narrations which claim he rebuffed orders from al-Mu'taz to assassinate his predecessor. I don't want to confuse you with rumors. In pro-Tulunid narratives, they mainly serve to justify Ahmed's disenchantment with the Abbasids as power-hungry politicians. In reality, it didn't matter what al-Mu'taz and Ibn Tulun thought of one another, as the caliph didn't really wield much power during his reign. Far more importantly for the 30-year-old commander was the fact that his mom had remarried an influential Turk, his dad's good friend, Beykebek. This general was now responsible for many provinces across the caliphate, and it was he who first appointed Ibn Tulun to Egypt in 868 as its governor on his behalf. Now for section 2 in which Ibn Tulun consolidates his control over Egypt. Being governor did put Ahmad in a position of authority, but ultimately he was just an incoming official, new to the land and its society. There was a whole constellation of pre-existing interests and relationships that he had to learn and navigate in order to be effective at his job. Let's be super reductive and say that to accomplish mastery of the province, Ibn Tulun needed two things total control of the civil administration, and an army. If the proto-Lunid material is to be believed, the bureaucracy clashed with the new governor on day one when he refused a bribe of 10,000 dinar offered to him through the treasurer. Seems like the reform-minded Ibn Tulun was too clean for these crooks. Al-Tabari and Al-Mas'udi have nothing to say on the subject, though, so some skepticism may be justified. Over the course of several years, however, Ibn Tulun gradually replaced the key officials serving in the province, finally removing the troublesome treasurer in 872. 
creating his own fighting force should not have been possible. But Ahmad ibn Tulun had an easier time with it than he had achieving full control over his administration. Governors were almost never allowed to feel their own armies, by which I mean forces loyal to their person, with those responsible for a hostile frontier being some of the only special cases. Ibn Tulun's background and timing, however, were exceptional, and a unique opportunity presented itself early in his tenure. See, the governor of Palestine, Isa ibn Shaykh al-Shaybani, had gone rogue three years before Ahmad got the job. Since Ibn Tulun was the trusted stepson of one of the caliphate's most vaunted military leaders, he was allowed to use tax revenue from his province to put together a fighting force capable of dislodging al-Shaybani. Ahmad used his own military upbringing as a model, recruiting various ethnic groups into separate brigades, including Nubians, Berbers, Greek mercenaries, and of course, Turks. He marched them to war in the year 870, the year the anarchy ended and al-Muhammad came to power. Ibn Tulun was only 50 miles outside of Gaza when he received orders from the new administration to abandon the campaign and return to Egypt. The governor never disbanded his armies afterwards. He used them to effectively control his lands, and their mere existence was surely an asset in his struggle to capture the state. We're going to skip over most of their campaigns, as they're not very relevant, but suffice it to say that they mainly fought against Hashemites and some heterodox movements operating deep within the desert. Ultimately, his troops began to clash with the civilian population in Fustat, and he once again found inspiration in his own childhood. He began construction of a new capital, dubbed Al-Qata'i'a, the districts, in the early 70s. An Egyptian Samarra to seclude his armies from the rest of his subjects, with a district for each of the governor's forces. It took several years to complete, and its central mosque still stands in Cairo, bearing its founder's name to this day. And now for section 3 in which Ibn Tulun's overreach meets with unexpected success. In the year 870, the anarchy ended, though not without claiming the life of Ahmed's stepfather by Quebec. Al-Mu'tamid came to power in June of that year, and the new administration first sought to negotiate with Al-Shaybani, the insurgent governor of Palestine. The Abbasids eventually resorted to war in 872, and ultimately, they settled on offering al-Shaybani a position in his native Mesopotamia. The new master of greater Syria, including Palestine, was Amajur, a Turk, who I'm pretty sure was Ibn Tulun's father-in-law, though some sources say otherwise. In fact, there's a lot of confusion around this time about who held official authority anywhere, doubly so because there's no consensus on who was in charge in Samarra. In any case, this is my version of events. Enjoy. Amajor had a stronger relationships with the Abbasids, and so he was technically above Ibn Tulun in the pecking order. He seems to have trusted his son-in-law, because he allowed the governor of Egypt great leeway in administering his lands, and even added Alexandria and Barqa in Libya to Ibn Tulun's charge. 
This was completely justified, as Ahmad had proven to be an exceptionally effective governor. Having such a supportive boss and buffer between Egypt and the capital may have contributed to Ibn Tulun's overconfidence, because in 875 he steered up some potent drama. Again, there's little consensus on these issues and lots of blame thrown around. But basically, the governor sent more of his tax revenue to the caliph than he did his brother Talha, upsetting a delicate balance of power between the two. This was an extremely touchy subject, as it had the potential of igniting real strife within Abbasid ranks, possibly precipitating another civil war. Talha flipped out, demanded Ibn Tulun step down, and even announced a major as his official replacement. The all-powerful general was incensed to find himself outmaneuvered by the governor, as for once nobody seemed to take him seriously. Amajor didn't want the job, and many officials petitioned him on Ibn Tulun's behalf to protect their own commercial interests. Talha then ordered Musa ibn Bugha to lead an army from Iraq and remove Ibn Tulun by force. Ironically, there was no way to finance this campaign without Egyptian taxes. Musa's army stalled in Raqqa for several months before the whole thing was abandoned. Thus, Ibn Tulun's audacious gambit paid off handsomely, like way more than he had any right to expect. He began to increasingly defend the sanctity of the caliphate and positioned himself as a rival to Talha. For his part, the caliph seems to have appreciated having this rising star in his corner. Some accounts say that when Amajur passed away in 878, Al-Mu'tamid appointed Ibn Tulun in his place, putting him in charge of all of greater Syria. Others paint the governor of Egypt's seizures of these lands as an act of overreach that the central government was powerless to stop as it had its hands full with the slave rebellion in Basra, which had by this point engulfed most of Iraq. No matter what we choose to believe, in 878, Ibn Tulun marched out of Egypt at the head of an army and took the major cities of Syria without a fight. The first battle took place in Antioch, which was controlled by an old enemy of his referred to as Tal Sima in our sources. After dealing with him, Ibn Tulun marched triumphantly into Tarsus, hoping to boost his own profile by leading the summer raid against the Byzantines. News of a mutiny back home derailed his plans. His son and heir, Abbas, was trying to usurp him. Ibn Tulun raced back to Egypt, only for the coup to flop while he was still in Syria. Its aftermath was ugly for Abbas, who was forced to personally slay his co-conspirators before being jailed for life. Section 4. What Goes Up in which we'll cover Ibn Tulun's infamous final gambit and its schismatic aftermath. I need to open this section by introducing three minor rulers who are a little unrelated to our story, but will eventually work their way into it. We'll start with someone we've already met, Isa ibn al-Shaykh al-Shaybani. 
This rogue governor of Palestine had been reappointed as governor of Armenia, a position he mostly fulfilled from Diyarbakir in his home of Mesopotamia to its south. His charge included Azerbaijan too, by the way, but his struggle was mainly against the independent kingdom of Armenia and small Arab coalitions that sought to maintain their autonomy. The second is Ishaq ibn Kundaj, a Turkish commander whom Talha trusted due to his years of faithful service. In 879, the Abbasid general appointed him in charge of Mosul and tasked him with countering the Karajite rebellion which made controlling, taxing, and administering Mesopotamia all but impossible. After some early victories, his foes made alliances with other nearby tribes, including another Abbasid governor, our first minor figure, al-Shaybani. This coalition of smaller powers managed to defeat Ishaq in his first years, but as the Abbasids made progress against the rebels in Iraq, Talha could afford to send him more reinforcements, and by 881 or 882, the governor of Mosul had managed to add Mesopotamia and Armenia to his charge, although actual enforcement of his claim to these lands was still challenged by wayward tribes. The third and final minor figure is Muhammad ibn Abi Saj. Surprisingly, the son of the commander who had betrayed the caliphate to Yaqub al-Safar during his invasion of Iraq was still trusted, and he was in charge of a couple cities along the modern borders of Iraq and Syria. We don't have much to say about him yet, but he'll soon get involved in a play against the Tulunids. Now that we've introduced these three, and established how fragmented government control was outside of Iraq, with Abbasid governors sometimes allying with outsiders against one another, we can proceed with our narrative. Everything started going wrong for Ahmad ibn Tulun in 882. In the summer of that year, his main Syrian general stationed in Aleppo, Lu'lu, defected to Talha's side totally destabilizing Egypt's control of the province. Soon afterwards, the governor of Tarsus lost control, and his usurper, Yazaman, refused to acknowledge Tulunid authority. All this insubordination prompted Ibn Tulun to lead an army to reassert control, dragging his traitorous son Abbas along in chains with him this time. On his way out, he received a messenger from Samarra with some very interesting news. The caliph had written, saying that after more than a decade of humiliation, he could no longer bear his role as his brother's puppet. Al-Mu'tamid said he planned to make a secret trip out to Syria and requested that Ibn Tulun, this constant champion of his unique right to rule the Ummah, rendezvous with him there and take him into his protection. This was once-in-a-lifetime stuff, and Ibn Tulun was super into it. The caliph's relocation to Egypt would elevate Ibn Tulun far above Talha, who could then be delegitimated as a failed usurper. So Ahmad Ibn Tulun marched out to Syria, hoping to meet Al-Mu'tamid there in late 882. For his part, the disgruntled caliph selected a few close attendants and departed for Raqqa in Tulunid territory. Perhaps if they'd picked a different path they'd have made it, but they chose to go through Mesopotamia, the territory of Talha's loyal Ishaq ibn Kundaj. 
Al-Tabari says that Talha had already caught wind of this plot and had written to Ibn Kundaj with orders to arrest his brother if he was spotted. Ishaq apprehended the caliph as soon as he had him surrounded, reprimanded him for his betrayal, and even put him in chains for the journey back to Samarra. He may have escorted al-Mu'tamid in person, because in late January 883, Ishaq ibn Kundaj was celebrated for his service and granted nominal authority over Syria and Egypt. The caliph was forced to publicly denounce Ahmad ibn Tulun, who was henceforth to be cursed from pulpits across the land. After years of actively undermining the relationship between the two Abbasids, Ibn Tulun had finally succeeded in creating a rupture, only for Talha to come out on top. But a man like him wasn't going to let a trifling matter like being cancelled get in his way. He replied in kind, assembling a council of judges in Damascus, who pronounced Talha a heretic, pointing to his flagrant coercion of the caliph. Al-Mu'tamid was still considered the rightful leader of the Ummah, but Ibn Tulun would no longer take orders from, nor pay taxes to, Samarra. For all intents and purposes, he was now the independent ruler of his own realm. Section 5. Like Father, Like Son In which we cover Ahmad Ibn Tulun's death and succession, as well as examine the political situation in the region. Ibn Tulun's presence in Syria was enough to reclaim the cities Lu'lu' had abandoned, but those minor victories would prove to be his last. His assault on Tarsus in the fall of 883 was thwarted by Yazaman, and an army sent to seize control of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina was beaten back by the caliphate's forces. Ahmad ibn Tulun fell ill on his way back from Syria and died in his capital of Al-Qata'i' in May of 884, at the age of 49. He had designated one of his sons as his successor, and the 20-year-old Khumarwai accepted the role without incident. It's a good thing that his father had bequeathed him an obedient administration and a full treasury, because he was going to need them. Khumarwai's ascension may have gone smoothly internally, but Ibn Tulun's passing encouraged his many enemies to go on the offensive against the untested youth. Two of our minor figures from the previous section, Muhammad ibn Abi Saj and Ishaq ibn Kundaj, joined forces to invade Syria, and they swiftly rolled Tulunid control back to Palestine. Talha's son, Ahmad, arrived with an army to reinforce them, but he quickly alienated both commanders, and they withdrew from the campaign leaving him to face Khumarwai's full army on his own. The showdown took place in the spring of 885 in southern Palestine, and the Tulunids managed to convincingly rout the Abbasids. Their dominance over Syria was so assured by their victory that we're told the residents of Damascus refused to allow Ahmad and the remnants of his army to shelter in their city, for fear of reprisals down the line. The Abbasids thus returned to Iraq, and Ibn Tulun's dynasty passed its first test. So it's clear that the Tulunids weren't going away anytime soon. They held Syria, Yazaman controlled Tarsus and the region bordering the Byzantine Empire, 
and the Abbasids claimed everything else. But as we can infer from the way their coalition had fallen apart before the big battle against Khumarwai, the Abbasid side wasn't as united as it looked. Within months of their return to Syria, Muhammad ibn Abi Saj reached out to the Tulunids for an alliance against the governor of Mesopotamia, Ashaq ibn Kundaj. Egypt supported Muhammad against his foe, helping him win a series of encounters. Ibn Kundaj acknowledged Tulunid overlordship in 886, led a failed rebellion against them in 887, then allied with them against his rival Ibn Abi Saj in 888, ultimately vanquishing him from Mesopotamia once and for all. The result of this political pandemonium was that the Tulunids controlled the province, though only through Ibn Kundaj, a Abbasid agent whom they were powerless to replace. This convoluted compromise was a direct result of the military equilibrium between the Tulunids and the Abbasids. Neither had the strength to force its own claim to Mesopotamia, and both had to be satisfied with indirect influence instead. This is a good point to end our narrative for today, to reflect on Ahmad ibn Tulun's legacy and cover some aspects of his reign that we ignored. His main impact was obviously on Egypt, which had not exercised any political independence for centuries, not since the Ptolemaic dynasty at least. Maybe that's unfair, actually. It's not like the local population had any say in their governance, for Ibn Tulun imported the same hyper-centralized style of administration that he'd grown up with in Samarra. It allowed a skilled and respected commander like himself great control, but could not survive a weak ruler or divided government. This flaw proved to be one of the main factors which brought about the downfall of the Tuluna dynasty a little over 20 years after its founder's demise. But we'll leave that discussion for another time. For now, let's focus on his time in charge. Ahmad ibn Tulun was great for Egypt. He invested in the province and reformed the tax system, changes which increased annual revenue five-fold to over four million gold dinar. His reported piety never manifested as prejudice, and Ibn Tulun appointed Jewish and Christian officials to the very highest levels of government. These communities prayed for his recovery in his final days, and his funeral was attended by tens of thousands of Egyptians of all religious stripes. Finally, his armies were well-trained and well-led, giving Egypt the muscle it needed to realize its full geopolitical potential and assume control of the Mediterranean coast from Libya all the way to modern Turkey. Ibn Tulun's government didn't benefit Egypt alone. It proved to be a boon for greater Syria as well. In their first era, the Abbasids were suspicious of the province since it had served as the seat of Umayyad authority. This alienation unfortunately only grew deeper and the relationship with Iraq never recovered, making Tulunid control more palatable to the Syrians. The Caliphate's border with the Byzantines also received a boost with the arrival of Ibn Tulun. He was far more invested in waging war against the empire than the Abbasids, 
who had plenty of other things to worry about. It was a good way of gaining legitimacy in the eyes of the Ummah, so he left plenty of his most capable soldiers in Tarsus, where raids against the Byzantines were typically launched from. These troops were so powerful that even Ibn Tulun couldn't defeat them after they chose to back Yazaman's push for autonomy. In fact, Al-Mas'udi regales us with several tales in his history of Arab heroism against their foes, naming Yazaman as one of ten commanders who held a special place in Byzantine memory. An important part of Ahmad ibn Tulun's legacy was his impact on the relationship between the caliph and his brother. The fact that Talha was the real power behind al-Mu'tamid wasn't lost on anybody. It was an open secret before the governor of Egypt ever got involved. In fact, if you read any Arab histories, you'll find that none refer to Talha by his name, preferring to use a title instead. Shortly after al-Mu'tamid came to power, Talha assumed the honorific al-Muwaffaq, he who is ordained with victory, something usually reserved for caliphs. This was a symbolic manifestation of a very real state of affairs. But that's not to say that Ibn Tulun's meddling accomplished nothing. His shining a light on this unusual arrangement made al-Mu'tamid feel exposed and insulted. He grew uncomfortable, then ambitious, and if his plan to escape hadn't been foiled, a devastating civil war could have broken out. Ibn Tulun's son, Khumarway, did all right. He was nowhere near as disciplined or military-minded as his father, and his profligate spending practically depleted the treasury, but he managed to hold on to the state. Five years after his father's death, he reached an understanding with the Abbasids, in which they agreed to recognize the Tulunid state as an independent vassal for three decades, so long as it paid them 200,000 dinars a year. A pittance, less than 5% of its annual revenue. This arrangement formalized his father's crowning accomplishment. Unfortunately for the Tulunids, however, their dynasty won't be able to survive Khumarway's sons, and it would fall to a revitalized Abbasid caliphate in the first decade of the 10th century. There's still some way to go between where we're at and this victorious, resurgent caliphate. We've slowly worked our way through the principal challenges facing the Abbasids during al-Mu'timid's reign, but with the tiny exception of the overlap between the slave rebellion and the Safarids in Khuzestan, these discussions felt very separate, like they were happening at different times. They were actually simultaneous, making Abbasid survival even more unlikely and impressive than it already seems. We'll try to pull these threads together so that we can achieve a fuller understanding of al-Mu'tamid's days and discuss the issue of his succession. Next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.